Well, we're continuing our time in Luke chapter 13. The goal is to, is to finish out this chapter this morning, kind of picking up where we left off last week and carrying it through to the end of this chapter. I wonder what kind of person you are. When someone says, I've got some good news and some bad news, what kind of person are you? Like, which one do you want to hear first? You want to hear the good news first or the bad news first? All right, all right, good. I, I think we can all agree. Because at least when, when there's the bad news comes, we know at least something better is coming, right? We, we can at least kind of hope that, that this good news will help to console us or in some way overcome the, this bad news that we've just heard, right? Jesus understands that in this passage this morning, and so Jesus will start with some really bad news. And quite honestly, it's the worst imaginable news we could ever hear. But we have to understand, the ministry of Jesus is described by the Apostle John at the very beginning of John chapter 1. It says that Jesus was one who was full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. So we know the, the strong, straightforward, very hard words of Jesus in our passage today are words that, that are punctuated by love. There, there are words of grace that seek to draw in those who would resist. He wants them to understand the strength of the warning so they can not only appreciate the dangers of the decision and the consequences of rejecting Jesus, but so they can know the joys of, of coming in and entering in to the fellowship and intimacy in relationship that God is offering through his son Jesus. He wants them to know the good news too. But Jesus, because he loves his audience and because he came, he, he adorned himself in human flesh, it says in Philippians chapter two. He, he became a man for the very purpose of being God made flesh, dwelling among his people, inviting them into relationship. And we're gonna see in this passage today, Jesus is weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you'd only known what I had come to do. But you were unwilling, and that is the, that is, that's the banner that's written over the life of those living in the first century. They were unwilling to receive this open invitation that Jesus was coming to offer through himself. Let me introduce this passage to us just by reading through a portion of it this morning, then kind of setting this forward in terms of a, just an, an, an opening uh, illustration, and then we can jump into our, our, our text, kind of pick up where we left off last week and carry it through to the end of the chapter. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible and you're joining us, there's a, there's a pew Bible in the pew ahead of you. It's on page 872. So I would just encourage you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Take it home, uh, read it, and, and come to know the Savior through the message of his word. 
I want to pick up our reading in verse 27, and then we'll read through to the end of the chapter. Jesus is responding to a question that, that has been asked to him in verse 23. Lord, will those who are saved be few? And now Jesus, after having given an illustration, comes in verse 27. But, but I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Now here comes the bad news. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last, um, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This very bad news that Jesus was consistently clear about as it relates to the torment of hells and being cast out away from the presence of the Lord himself. When asked the question, what is the most difficult doctrine in the Bible to accept? R.C. Sproul said the doctrine of hell. It is this idea of everlasting punishment forever in the torments of hell that we as people cannot wrap our minds around and especially and try to compare it to a God that we know is holy and just but also full of grace and mercy. How can it be that a God would introduce this kind of, of terror on those who rebel against him? One spiritual leader, Rob Bell, has written a book that addresses this question in his book called Love Wins. He says, of all the billions of people who have ever lived, will only select number make it to a better place? And every single other person suffer in torment and punishment forever? Is this acceptable to God, he says? Has God created millions of people over tens of thousands of years who are going to spend eternity in anguish? Can God do this or even allow this and still claim to be a loving God? Does God punish people for thousands of years with infinite eternal torment for things they did in their few finite years of life? Is history tragic? Have billions of people been created only to spend eternity in conscious punishment and torment, suffering infinitely for the finite sins they committed in the very few years they spent on earth? Is our future uncertain, or will God take care of us? Are we safe? Are we secure? Or are we on our own? At the center, he says, of the Christian tradition, 
since the first church has been a number who insist that history is not tragic, hell is not forever, in love in the end wins, and all will be reconciled to God. Well, Jesus has some very hard words for Rob Bell. Rob Bell has not read Luke chapter 13, verses 28 through the end of the chapter. And while we can understand and appreciate the complexity and the difficulty of coming to terms with this very hard doctrine, Jesus wants the ones he loves to understand what are the eternal ramifications for rejecting Jesus. Just like any parent would do in warning their son or their daughter about the impending doom of, or consequences of a particular action. Don't play in the street. I fear for your life. I fear for your safety. I don't want you to experience the devastating consequences of that kind of action. And just as any parent would warn their child out of love the dangers of a particular action, Jesus, in this moment, on this day, months away from his crucifixion in Jerusalem is not only warning the crowd about the future eternity away from him, but also the joys. The good news is there is joy that is available. There is fellowship that's available. There is intimacy with God that can be had if one just pledges their allegiance to Jesus. Loyalty to Christ in receiving the joys of the treasure that he has to offer through fellowship with him. We've been working our way through this chapter 13. And I, just, just to catch us up to where we are, I want to start back in verse 22, and we'll just quickly work our way through and catch us up to where we are today. We saw in verse 22, it says, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. We saw Jesus' persistent ministry. Jesus wanted to make the gospel, the message of the kingdom, accessible. Jesus made it available to everyone who lived in Israel. Not only to those who were in and around the religious center of Jerusalem, but especially in the regions of Galilee, in the regions of Perea, which were on the eastern side of the Jordan, and also in Samaria and Judea. Jesus, understanding the danger and the risk of the ministry, especially in these final months of his ministry, was undeterred and unwilling to abandon the mission that God had sent him on, and that was to communicate the message of the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus continued to teach from village to village, consistently aligning himself to the mission that God the Father had him on. In verse 23, we saw that in the crowd was this perceptive question as Jesus has been teaching. It's been clear that his message has been so different from the traditions that they've heard. And so in, in verse 23, this, this question comes to the surface. Someone says to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? This is a perceptive question for at least two reasons. First, it's per perceptive because in the Jewish mindset, salvation was something entirely different than what Jesus was teaching. 
In their minds, salvation was always about deliverance from oppression or deliverance from enemies or deliverance from suffering in difficulties of life. But Jesus' salvation and deliverance was something different. It was deliverance from sin, salvation from this coming wrath of God. Second, it was perceptive because this person has come to understand that there's some exclusive nature about the salvation that Jesus is talking about. Not just about a specific nation or a people of Israel, as it were, but even within the nation of Israel, there was some measure of deciding for or against Jesus or for or against salvation that Jesus continues to address throughout his ministry. Something about what he taught was what introduced some constraints. Somehow it was limited. So Jesus then addresses this question in verse 24, and we see his peculiar answer. It's not what the crowd would have expected, and he didn't even address the question directly. Instead of answering the question, will there only be a few who are saved, Jesus addresses it with a command, and he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Jesus, rather than addressing the issue of quantity, wants to help his listener to understand that you have a decision in this moment for or against me, for or against my message, to accept or reject the invitation that I have been giving to you. What will you do? Will you be one of those who come to accept the message that I'm offering. This invitation. Strive to enter through this narrow door, he says. We looked at the quality of his answer and we made some observations about it. We, we noticed, first of all, that his answer does call attention to faith. His answer does call attention to faith because we always strive for those things that we believe will benefit us in the long run. And we see, we saw last week, that faith was always assumed in the audience that Jesus was addressing. Faith was never the problem for the people of the day. They came to Jesus in droves. They followed him wherever they went. They believed that what he was doing was real. They understood. There was, there was a, nobody who questioned the quality of the miracles that Jesus was doing. The evidence of what Jesus was doing was obvious. It was unquestionable. People were actually becoming healed. Diseases were actually being eradicated. Demons were actually being cast out. It was clear that what Jesus was doing was real. Truly, he was receiving power supernaturally, whether from God or some other power. That was undisputable. So the problem was not necessarily with their faith, but Jesus will call attention to the quality and the kind of faith. What kind of faith are you looking for? I'm looking for the kind of faith that is going to be coupled with striving. He calls attention to this, this quality, this word in the Greek is agonizomai. It's the only time in the synoptic gospels where this word is, where, this word is used. Agonizomai is the word from which we get agony. It talks about suffering, to compete, to fight, to struggle. This self-denial that produces real repentance in the heart of the individual. 
And in issuing this command, he uses the middle voice, which, which places the burden of responsibility on the individual. It, it draws out the, the individual response to this work that Jesus is doing, it calls attention to the faith that must be true in you. It can't be a faith of your spouse. It can't be a faith of your father or mother or grandpa or grandma or friend or brother or sister. It must be a faith of striving that happens in you yourself. His answer also calls attention to effort. And when we hear this word effort and we try to put it together with the word believe, we, we struggle a little bit because when we think about believing, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. We know that is true. We also understand that the work that Christ did for us on the cross is a work that is sufficient. It is complete. There's nothing to add to that work. As a matter of fact, anybody who would seek to add to the work that God has already done is somebody who is not actually believing in Christ at all. And that's why Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, um, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So we understand that, that, that what God is calling us to is faith, but, but the kind of faith that is put to action, as James will say, faith without works is dead. It's the kind of faith that transforms a life. The kind of faith that, that causes action in movement, in direction towards God. It is this cost of discipleship that Jesus consistently points to. A willingness to follow God at any cost. And in his sermon in, in Luke chapter 12 that we just covered a few weeks ago, he addresses the cost of family, the cost of comfort, the cost of financial security, the cost of reputation, even the cost of life. When the master makes a call, the servant yields to that call and obeys. He's willing to forfeit those things for the sake of allegiance and loyalty to the master. And what the person lays down, by the way, is not an even exchange. It's not a fair exchange. It was, the, what, what we get in return is beyond comparison, as the Apostle Paul will say in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. What things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ, yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ laying down that which is temporary to receive that which is eternal, to lay down those special gifts of God in the here and now, to receive the treasure of Christ himself. There is no compare. It's an exchange with tremendous benefits, the surpassing greatness of God himself, the treasure of Christ. That's what we get. And the true disciple of Christ understands the wonder of that easy exchange. Jesus' answer also gives attention to exclusivity. We find that in verse 24. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. 
While there may be over 4,000 different religions in the world today, there is only one way of salvation because there is only one true God. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We understand the narrow gate, the single path, the one way as Jesus will say in the night before his crucifixion to his disciples in that upper room, in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Understand this narrow way. Understand this one access point, believing and trusting in me alone for deliverance of your sin, forgiveness and cleansing. Jesus' answer also calls attention to urgency that we find in verses 25 to 27. Jesus now provides a story to help solidify this truth in the minds of those who are listening. He says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Jesus here is describing a door that presently is open. It may be a single door, a narrow door, but it is an open door with neon signs and flashing lights, with examples who have gone before of those who have received and enjoyed the benefits of the salvation that Jesus is talking about. And now, as a pastor who is now uh, explaining the way of salvation in this narrow door and, and pleading with you in this moment, if you have never walked through that door, if you've never entered in by faith, this is the moment. Do not let this moment go. Christ issues this standing invitation to sinners who will enter through this narrow door Romans chapter 10, verses 12 to 13, we know that while this way is single, it is open for all who will come. Paul will say there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, meaning it doesn't matter if you're related to Abraham. It doesn't matter if you have the benefits of all of that tradition or you are an outsider like a Gentile. Everyone now comes to faith in Christ the same way. He says, for the same Lord is Lord over all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord? For now, the invitation is open. But once the door is shut, whether you pass on from this life through an old age or through a sudden event, or the master closes the door on this present age. Once the door is shut, the way of salvation is closed for those who've heard and rejected this message. And I might say that every time your heart hears the word and is prompted to respond with a yes and yet responds with a no, every time your heart says no, 
You are hardening your heart against the way that Jesus has made so open and available. Jesus is warning those who are biding their time. They were aware of the danger. They had heard the warning. They knew the message. They had been steeped in the the traditions. They had heard the scriptures, but they wanted to wait just a little longer. Maybe there was too much to experience. Maybe there was too much fun to have. Maybe there was too much comfort to pursue. Maybe the way of Christ was way too difficult. Christianity perhaps seems too restrictive. Or maybe there are those who have been playing the game. They've been sitting on the periphery. They have, been, uh, they have adopted a measure of, of religious tradition like many of those in the audience that Jesus was speaking to. They know how to go through the motions. They know how, knew how to live on the periphery. They have this form of godliness, but they deny the power. It means that they deny the powers of the Holy Spirit to change them from one degree of glory to the other. They will not forego sin. They will not yield themselves to the mission that God has set them on. They will not press in and serve God's people. Jesus in the church is just something that they embrace because they know they should. Not because they crave worship or intimacy or fellowship with God. They still have their own agenda. They still have their own priorities. They still have their own life to live. Jesus is addressing these kinds of individuals. He wants them to know, as Paul will say in just a few verses before this, in Romans 10, verse 9, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Striving to enter means that you make Christ the master of your life. You make him the Lord over all. You make him the greatest and best treasure and affection that you pursue. All of life is wrapped around this one beautiful treasure of Christ. And all of life is consumed with seeking to please him and worship him and serve him and love the body that he's put you in place with. And as the writer of the Hebrews will say, today... If you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Allow the Holy Spirit even now to address the reluctance in your life and to overcome that reluctance with God's willingness and to give you, even in this moment, a heart to say, God, Whatever you ask me to do, you are king, you are Lord, you are master. And and however difficult that might be, wherever you might send me to go, whatever decisions you need me to make, whatever conversations you, you tell me I must have, whatever habits I need to break, whatever it is, Lord, you are Lord of my life, and I want you to be king over all. So the writer says, therefore strive. Strive to enter that rest. And let me tell you, it is rest. There is safety in trusting, in believing in Jesus. That Jesus wants you to enjoy. He wants you to have. 
whatever turmoil and struggle and pain and anguish you're experiencing because of decisions you've made and the heartache that you might have, Jesus wants you to know that if you, if you press into him, those things might not go away, but, but at least you have the confirming um, understanding that, that Christ is Lord over that. He will strengthen you for what he wants you to do and he will help you through. He will show you himself through that and will assure your hearts that he is with you. Jesus' answer also calls attention to judgment that we see in verse 28. He says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. Is hell real? In the Gospels, no one spoke more about hell than Jesus. He was unequivocal, he was unapologetic. In our passage today, Jesus describes the horror and the torment of hell by describing it in terms of weeping and gnashing of teeth, the grinding of teeth, which expresses the intensity of the anguish that they were undergoing. Jesus in Mark chapter nine, verses 43 and 48, addresses uh, this eternal anguish in this way. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And Jesus uh, confirms this same, the eternality of hell in Matthew chapter 13, when he is speaking in the parables, verses 40 to 42, he says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then in the final week of Jesus' life and ministry, while he's in Jerusalem, he's answering the question that his disciples ask him about the kingdom. He talks about, Jesus talks about the separation of the true and authentic believers from those who are not authentic, the sheep and the goats, in Matthew chapter 25, and here's what he says. Then he will say to those on his left, those are the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There is a resurgence right now of a doctrine called annihilationism, which would suggest that those who are sinners and cast into hell will be consumed in the fires of hell and will no longer experience the anguish and torment of that, that, uh, that place. But Jesus here makes the case unequivocal. You cannot, um, cannot come against it because he uses the same word eternal to describe the life that we have in heaven versus eternal versus the death that will be experienced away from God forever in hell. And if you're sitting wondering how in the world could this be? How could it be that God would condemn a person for eternity because of sin that happens in a moment. How can it be fair or just or right? Let me just share a brief illustration 
And every illustration has its difficulties. This one has some difficulties, but bear with me. Imagine two young teenage boys who are in the same house. And one teenage boy comes running into the house and, and it's clear that he's been in a fight with his brother. His brother has punched him in the nose and now his nose is bleeding. And now mom is trying to decide what are the consequences for Bobby punching his brother in the nose. And so Bobby comes in and the mom is trying to wrestle with, okay, what, what, what do we do? What's the punishment for Bobby hitting his brother? Well, in the course of events, Bobby decides he's now gonna punch his mom. Now what are the consequences for Bobby disrespecting the authority of his mother? What once may have been a small consequence, now the stakes are rising. So now mom is trying to understand, what, how am I going to deal with now my rebel son who has just punched me in the nose? I'm going to wait for dad to come home. So dad comes home, he begins to address the problem, and Bobby now punches dad in the nose. Well, well dad has had enough. This is, not, this is not going well. So, so dad calls the police. He wants to raise the stakes. He wants his son to understand the, the consequences of his actions. The policeman comes to the door. Bobby punches the policeman in the nose. The same action, the same object, different results, different consequences. The, the policeman takes Bobby now to the judge. And the judge is weighing in on, on this case, and he knows that the consequences need to be severe. So he, 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 he invites Bobby up to the bench, and Bobby decides he's going to punch the judge right in the nose. Well, this, this judge has had enough. And the judge has, a, has really close connections to the President of the United States. And so... So he, so he sends Bobby to the President of the United States, and you know how this story is going. So, so Bobby reaches out to punch the President of the United States in the nose, and then what happens? The story is yours. You can write it however you want. <laughs> my, my, my guess is that Bobby doesn't ever reach the President. My guess is the Secret Service step in and terminate Bobby's life. How is it that the same action towards the same target can have significantly different results. How is that possible? It is, as we know, an issue of authority. It's an issue of position. It's an issue of responsibility over greater numbers of people. And so, so an offense against a holy, infinite, everlasting, majestic God However small it may seem in the economy of scale because of the authority of God demands eternal consequences in terrible ways separated from God forever in hell. Jesus desires his audience to be warned but he also wants to give them the good news and that's where we go next. He wants them to know that doesn't have to be this way. In verses 29 to 30, Jesus says, and people will come from the east and the west and from the north and from the south and they will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Isn't it interesting 
that Jesus, when describing the kingdom, does not describe it in the majesty that we know the, that glory of heaven has, but he describes it in terms of fellowship and intimacy. Jesus, of course, could have talked about the brilliance of our God. He could have talked about the radiance of God that shines in place of the sun. He could have talked about the train of God's robe that filled the temple with his glory. He could have talked about this throne, as we find in Revelation chapter 4, who has the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne a rainbow that has emerald appearance, and before the throne a sea of glass like crystal. He could have talked about the 24 elders and the four living creatures who are before the throne night and day. Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exalted and were created. He could have mentioned that, but instead of mentioning the glory and the grandeur and the majesty and the beauty of heaven, Jesus invites his audience to participate in fellowship in intimacy, in communion, in feasting, in satisfaction with him in heaven. This has always been Jesus' objective to welcome the crowd into fellowship with him. So how will the crowd respond? What will they do with the stern warning and the, the, the beautiful invitation? Well, the people, we find their prompt rejection in verses 31 to 35. Their prompt rejection. Notice, at that very hour, some of the Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will finish my course. Right in the heels of this strong warning and this wonderful invitation, the Pharisees make their threat. Herod, he wants to kill you, Jesus. Commentators are mixed on whether or not this was a sincere threat or whether this was just a manufactured threat. The truth is that if Herod wanted to kill Jesus, he could have easily sent his armies and, and, and easily captured him. Jesus' ministry was public. He was accessible. Finding and capturing Christ would have been no problem for Herod. More, it's more likely, however, this was not sincere. That Herod did not actually want to seek out Jesus, that he did not consider Jesus as a threat. The proof of that is in the meeting of Jesus and Herod there in the final week, actually the, the final moments before Jesus' Jesus's death. In Luke chapter 23, verse 8, we see this interchange between Herod and Christ. When Herod saw Jesus, in Luke 23, 8, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some signs done by him. He didn't consider Jesus a threat. He saw Jesus more as an entertainer, more as some figure that he didn't have to worry about. The Pharisees actually invented the story to shut Jesus down. That's what I think. It was to intimidate. It was to threaten. It was to frighten Jesus, but Jesus would not be silenced they could not seem to dissuade the crowds. They could not seem to trap him or put him on the spot. So what do they do? Well, they make him an enemy of the state. They spread propaganda about him. Herod wants to kill you, Jesus. 
maybe to intimidate Christ, but probably more likely to intimidate the crowds. Don't follow this guy. Herod's after him. Be warned. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. He knows what awaits him. He knows that God the Father has this master plan for him to go to Jerusalem and to die and to rise again. He understands that no earthly power has authority over his life. And he says as much to Pilate in John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. Pilate says to him, you will not speak to me? Do you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus would not be intimidated. Jesus understood that in a couple of months' time, he would go to Jerusalem. He would carry out the mission that God the Father had given to him to die for the sins of the world, to rise again, and to offer life. But not only was he rejected by the religious leaders, finally and briefly, he was re rejected by the people. We find this, this grieving prayer of Christ at the end of chapter 13, beginning in verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jerusalem, of course, was the center for teaching, the center from worship. It was the, the national center of the, the nation of Israel. It represented the heart and soul of the Jewish people. It was really the measure of where the people were spiritually. What Jerusalem did was indicative of what the nation would also do. While much of Christ's ministry was in Galilee and Samaria and Perea, now the final leg of his ministry is here in Jerusalem and in the region of Judea around Jerusalem. The heart of God was to rescue his people. His compassion overflowed for them. With teaching and journeying and serving and healing and visiting, consistently he called them, follow me. Follow after me. Strive to enter the narrow door. And what got in the way consistently was not the reluctance of God, but the unwillingness of them. But you were not willing, Jesus says. For hundreds of years, they had waited for their Messiah. His message was distinctive. His miracles confirmed his identity. His life and character was pure. His compassion overflowed in mercy and grace for the people. His authority over nature and demons and diseases marked him as one who was from God and the word of the Father at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The consistent affirmation of the prophetic scriptures all pointed to one truth. Truly, this was the son of God. And yet, they did not receive him because they were unwilling. I wonder where you are today.
What is keeping you from a deep, rich, intimate relationship with God? The problem is never God's reluctance. God is willing, as we see in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So what is the problem? It's not God's unwillingness. It is yours. And that has been the barrier of relationship with God from the very beginning. This offer of salvation that's open. As Isaiah the prophet will say in Isaiah 30, 15, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you were, again, unwilling. What will you do with Jesus today? For those of you who have never come to experience Jesus in a personal relationship with God, what will you do in this moment? The door is open, it stands ready. Your Savior is there with open arms, willing to receive you as you confess your sins to him, as you bow the knee to King Jesus, as you give him your heart and believe that he alone can take away your sins and can make you right with God. And for those of you who do know Jesus, who have entered into relationship with him, the invitation is still the same. The consistent, faithful, ongoing relationship that we can have with God as he welcomes us into communion and fellowship with him day by day. Are you willing to enjoy the fellowship that Jesus offers to you through himself while this crowd rejected Christ in his earthly ministry, by God's grace, it did not seal their, direct, their rejection forever. We, we find in, in Acts chapter uh, 6, verse 7, that, that, that while during Jesus' ministry they rejected him, by God's grace they came to faith in him just a few weeks later. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, The word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The mercy of God continued to extend itself. The door continued to remain open, and by God's grace, they entered in. What will you do with Jesus in this moment? How will your life represent a commitment to striving through that narrow door, laying down the things of this life to show that God is your ultimate treasure, embracing the mission that he has for you, and seeking to invite others to participate as well. Oh God, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for hard words, but also very good words. The, the, the bad news, but this is also uh, coupled with the good news. This invitation that we have to enjoy. Oh God, I pray if anyone here today does not know Jesus as their Savior, even now, speak to their heart. May they not harden their heart today. Draw them in. Take away their reluctance. Give them willingness. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.